0: Thank you, Rod. Thank you to the band this morning. Um, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? I was um, thinking this morning on the, the drive into church. I'd been at my great-uncle's funeral on uh, Monday just, just past. He was, he was 97, and uh, it transpired that there was quite a lot I didn't know um, about this man. And One of the things I didn't know about this man was that he actually worshipped here. Um, he was married here. he came to to faith here um, back in one thousand nine hundred and seventy five and of course it wasn 't Hebron at the time it was it was Gilcomston. and um, my, uh, his, his niece my my second cousin I think, was remarking after that she hadn 't been uh, back into Hebron or back into this this building since it had become Hebron, and she was remarking that she was delighted that it was still a house of god and of course i 'm thankful. For all of you as brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm also thankful for, for this building and the institution that it is in this town. A place for believers to come and to meet together and to worship him. We have a lot to be thankful for. Um, this morning we're picking up from where Kevin finished last week at verse 11 of chapter 10. And we're going to follow the chapter through to its conclusion. Um, And once we've done that, we as a congregation should be about two-thirds of the way through our studies in Romans. It feels like a long time at times, but it also feels like just yesterday that Willie was introducing this book to us. Believe it or not, that was back on the 29th of August. And at the time, Willie mentioned that this particular letter to the Romans could be termed the Gospel of God And indeed, that has been our theme, our overarching name, if you like, um, as we've walked through our studies in this book. And indeed, we've seen it come clearly to the floor on many occasions. And here again, we will see it come clearly to the floor. As Paul lays out for us in this passage that we're about to read, very plainly, the context in which we are to come to faith. So let's read it together. It's... Chapter 10, verse 11. I'm reading from the ESV translation, and it's on the screen behind me. It says this For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news but they have not all obeyed the gospel for isaiah says Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to, to gather together and to turn to your word and to read off it just pearls of wisdom and encouragement and challenge and Lord we pray that as we have just sang that you would speak this morning to us Lord that you would challenge our thinking that you would encourage our souls that you would reach deep into us and encourage us to become more like your son and Father we pray for our families and our children downstairs lord we pray that you would also speak to them this morning father that their minds would just soak up your word in your precious son's name amen <clears throat> the title that i would give to this morning's message whilst not particularly imaginative is the need and as we think about what it means to need I would like to think that we could consider three different contexts that we see running through this text. Three contexts or headings, if you will, as this. The first heading, the first need, is the need to understand. The second need is the need for no excuse. And the third need is a need for belief. So a need to understand, a need for no excuse, and a need for belief belief. Firstly then, the need for understanding. This section of our our studies in Romans is significant for our understanding of how we became saved from God's wrath, from the guilt and dominion of sin, with the hope of joy eternal in God. And therefore it's still very important for our understanding of how our children or our families, or brothers or sisters, our colleagues, our friends, indeed how any unreached person of the world would be saved. The process of coming to faith and salvation is laid out in this passage like nowhere else. But before we look at that, let's just circle back to what feels like the perennial point that Paul makes through the whole of Romans We see it stressed again here. Look with me at the introductory verses. Verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 says this. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all. Bestowing his riches. On all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Will be saved. Once again. Paul has just stressed that Jew and Gentile have no distinction in the enjoyment of riches of God's glory. Both, with no distinction, will enjoy the fullness of God's salvation if they call on the name of the Lord. And when Paul says this, he's thoughtful about his language. He uses phrases from the Old Testament to add weight to his argument. You see that in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The concordance I use as renders this verse a direct quote from the first half of Joel 2 and verse 32, which says exactly the same thing. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But the Jews had an issue with this, both with the, the principle of the point and also of understanding how this fits into the gospel narrative. Remember that the, the problem that Paul is dealing with all the way through, through Romans 9 and 10 is the issue of unbelief in Israel. And why it happened and why this doesn't actually undermine the faithfulness and reliability of God. So what Paul does here in the last verses of Romans 10 is show once more that the reason most of Israel does not have a share in salvation Is simply because they do not believe in the Messiah. They do not believe in Jesus. This is what we read off in verses 16 and 21. Look at those verses with me. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then verse 21. But of Israel he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient And contrary people. And just like verse 13. To hammer home the point. Paul is drawing on another witness from the Old Testament. Another prophet. This time Isaiah rather than Joel. And he is at strain to point out to the Jews. That just because they are Jews. They can't rely on this for their salvation. They need to understand That just as Isaiah was prophesying the coming of the Messiah, he too was highlighting to them that his own people may miss him. They would see him, but not know him. He would hold out his hands all day, yet they would not grasp his hand. They would continue In their contrary way. They would fail to understand that the Messiah had come. They would fail to understand that their salvation was upon Him. They would fail to realize their potential eternal calling right in front of their eyes. And just as the same way as it had been when Jesus was alive. Remember Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life. And it is there that they bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But this failure of the Jews to understand in those days is not dissimilar to the predicament of our current age. Indeed, it has been remarked that our culture is a a post-Christian culture. Not merely not a Christian culture, but a post-Christian culture increasingly a culture set against God. For plenty have seen and plenty have heard, plenty have experienced, and plenty have wondered, yet many fail to understand their hope, their belief, their anchor is in something different. It's perhaps in another belief system. It's maybe in themselves. It's maybe in this so-called spirit of humanity or in their material security. Or maybe it's just in the ether. Of nothingness. Just that empty toing and froing. Of the world as they know it. And to this observation we need two challenges. The first challenge is for us. Those who do understand. Those who do know Jesus. Those who have come to believe. Those who understand the context. And the point of Old Testament scripture leading up to Jesus. Do we fully understand? Do we fully understand the obligation that's on us to be witnesses of Christ? Do we fully understand the importance of committed, regular witness for the gospel? Or have we receded into that spot where we have accepted our post-Christian culture and determined somehow in our short-sightedness that people are simply too far gone? Imagine if that was God's approach. No, rather our approach should be a deep-rooted desire, a deep-rooted need to understand. To understand three things. That everyone has a need for a saviour. That every believer has a need to tell others about the saviour. And thirdly, that every believer needs to rely on the saviour. In order to tell others about the saviour. And the reason this last reason is important for us to understand. Is that despite it being so obvious. I think many of us become reliant on everything else. Other than God when it comes to witnessing. I very much include myself in this. We have become reliant on ourselves. We have become reliant on a process or a course. We have become reliant on materials or on a delivery mechanism or on a preacher or on a YouTube video or on an event or on our friends. We have become a bit like the Jews. Reliant on something other than Jesus for salvation. In their case it was the law. In our case it's the things and ways of people. We need to rely on Jesus. Trevin Wax, a Wheaton seminary professor, puts it this way. Jesus' commission isn't just go and tell. First, it's go and wait. In line with with Luke's emphasis on the person and role of the Holy Spirit, it's no surprise that the command of Christ in Luke 24 is this. Not to go in the world to make disciples, but rather to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Spirit. The fact that Jesus' command before his ascension is go and wait rather than go and tell. Understands the importance of the Holy Spirit's role in enabling the disciples to live up to the identity Christ has given them. What happens if we miss this point? Two things. We will overestimate the work Christians can do in their own power. And secondly, we downplay the necessity of the Spirit in the work of taking the gospel to the nations. Do we fully understand our obligation as a witness in Christ? It's to share Christ from a point of being rooted in Christ and having a faith in Christ That it will be him that will see a good work to completion. Our part of the narrative is to go and wait and then to go and tell. The second challenge in understanding is for those who are yet to believe. If you're not a Christian this morning or not sure at all what you believe, then surely you must think all of this to be rather narrow-minded All of this message today, after all, hangs on one truth. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, dying on our behalf, rising from the dead to defeat death and reconciling us with God. That is a truth that many of us here believe, but I'm sure not all. And you perhaps wonder what makes us so sure of our conviction, so sure of our claim to an exclusive truth a claim to their only being one way a claim to their being only one God this after all isn't the way of the world as we know it today where anything can be anyone to anybody yet we all know that there is finality to human life on this earth that there is a day when we will no longer be here and when that day comes What is going to be your understanding? There can't be an end with multiple competing truths. There can only be one truth. There will only be one truth. There will only be one thing that happens when this earthly life is done. I'm convinced of my understanding. Are you sure of yours? The second need is the need for no excuse. In chapter 9 from verse 30 to to verse 13 of chapter 10, Paul has shown that Israel's failure to attain salvation must be attributed to its failure to believe and not the failure of God's word. And now we see in our section of text, Paul removing any possible excuse that Israel might have for its failure to believe by asserting that the gospel has indeed been brought near. The conditions for believing in the gospel and finding salvation have been met. That's what he stresses. We see that in verses 14 to 15 and also 17 and 18. Verses that we'll look at just shortly. The fault then, Is Israel's for refusing to be obedient to this gospel. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And they have failed to understand the Old Testament itself. Which prophesied what God has now fulfilled in the gospel. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is where we read Paul setting forth this series of questions. To ensure that a series of conditions have been met. To hold Israel accountable for believing and calling on the Lord for salvation, we see here five steps that Paul mentions. Let's take them in reverse order from the way he mentions them to mention them in the way that they happen. They go like this. Step one: a preacher must be sent. Step two: the preacher must preach the good news. Step three: the preached news must be heard. Step four, the heard news must be believed. Step five, the belief must be the kind that calls on God for salvation. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling on God. And then amongst all of these things, we have that that cross reference back to Isaiah 52 in verse 8 where it says, How beautiful! Are the feet of those who bring the good news. This statement to emphasize the importance of the gospel message. But then after that, we hit verse 16, the place where we find out that the conditions in the chain have not all been fulfilled. Most of the previous steps have been done. Someone has been sent. The one who has been sent has preached the good news. The good news has been heard. But the good news that's been heard, has not been believed. And so Paul is at pains here to point out to Israel that they have no need for an excuse not to hear the gospel. Paul is very deliberate in his writing. Again, he brings in Old Testament language to bring those he is speaking to back to the point. And he stresses that both through the imagery of the beautiful feet of the messengers and then through the content of verses 18 to 20, that Israel has indeed both heard the word of Christ and also knowing about God's plan for salvation as it is now unfolded through the preaching of the gospel and to these facts he is he is holding them up and saying you can make no excuse you have heard and you have known yet still you close your mind one of the reasons of course that the jews have closed their mind was that they couldn't accept that the gospel was for everyone. That's perhaps why, why Paul again goes to the Old Testament in verse 18 of our text and directly quotes Psalm 19 and verse 4. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. To all the earth. To the ends of the world. God's plan was and is always for all people. Yes, Israel had a special place, but his plan was always for all. And the practical application for this point is similar to that of our need to understand. There's an application for the believer and there is an application for those who are yet to believe. For the believer is this. There is a need to have no excuse for not having beautiful feet. The conditions for salvation are for someone to be sent, someone to preach Christ and for that preaching to be to people who are yet to hear. When we speak about preaching in this sense, I don't believe it's just limited to the preaching from the pulpit or indeed to evangelists in a mission field. This is applicable to all who would bring the good news. And therefore it's applicable to all believers. And of course, when when Paul speaks about beautiful feet here, he's not speaking about soft, manicured, painted, well-tanned feet. Beautiful feet, rather. Or like dirty, worn, wrinkled, leathery, scarred feet that have walked for many miles, trekking to the most remote places with the good news of Jesus. This is our calling. This is our challenge. And we cannot put up excuses for it. The journey to reach people, be they in some far-flung destination, or over the other side of your garden fence, needs metaphorical feet to travel to bring the good news. People need to hear the gospel. And every excuse we put under the sun To not make that our personal duty holds no weight. We can be bringers of the good news at any time, in any capacity, and at any age. The good news in Christ's saving power, no no personality clash, nor no social norms, nor are they dependent on method, time, or some kind of mandatory Christian maturity. It's our duty now and always. Paul Brand, the medical missionary to India, said that his missionary mother removed all of the murders from her house when he told her at the age of 70 that she had aged. And for the next 20 years into her 90s, she never had another murder in the house because she never wanted her perception or anyone else's perception of age to come in the way of her bearing witness to the gospel. When his mom died, the villages gathered through all the mountains to bury a beautiful woman who had realized her need for no excuse. And the challenge to you here, if you're listening today and don't know Jesus, is for you to consider removing your excuse if you don't feel worthy don't worry because there isn't a believer here who was if you feel embarrassed about what it may mean again don't worry there isn't someone here who hasn't felt that way if you feel that you're giving something up then again don't worry because his word assures you that you have everything We have a need to understand. We have a need for no excuse. Thirdly, finally, and most importantly, we have a need to believe. Verse 14. How shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? The calling that Paul refers to here is the calling on Jesus Christ as Lord, our Lord. Not a stranger who shows up to get us out of a sticky situation and then disappears into the night, but a personal and constant Saviour. Romans ten nine, if you remember what Kevin said last week, it says this if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the calling that saves is a calling on Jesus Christ as your Lord. This is why Paul says, How can you call on the one whom you have not believed? Until you actually believe in Jesus as your Lord, you can't call on him as Lord. So if you want to have Jesus at any point, if you want to call out to him, if you want to pray to him, if you want to petition his throne, if you want to call for his intervention, then you need firstly to believe in him. And belief comes from the need for understanding. Understanding that there is one God in one way. Understanding that we all fall short of God's requirements. And also understanding that there is nothing we can rely on ourselves to right ourselves with God other than Jesus. And from this understanding there comes no excuse, no barrier, no walls, no arguments, no pitfalls. The truth has been revealed to us. We have heard We need now to believe. But what is belief? Belief in the sense that I think it is conveyed here is faith. Faith born out of hearing the gospel. Faith that the good news of Jesus is actually real. What then marks our faith or our belief? What characterizes our faith? Faith in some ways is hard to define, isn't it? perhaps easier to illustrate think of abraham the father of the faith what was his faith well it was a faith that made him pack up all his worldly possessions and go when god asked him to go it was a faith that brought him and his son isaac to the altar table what about the faith of noah a faith that caused him to visibly swim against the tide To build a boat in anticipation of a devastating storm when everyone else around him looked on him with scorn. Or the faith of Daniel in the lion's den. The faith of Shedrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire. The faith of the woman who washed Jesus' feet. The faith of the woman with the perennial bleeds that reaches out to Jesus' cloak in faith. Moses and his faith at the crossing of the Red Sea. David... And his faith as he faced down Goliath, the sinner on the cross, who put his faith in Jesus. So many examples that define to some extent faith. We did this very question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Last week in our, our Bible classes, we go through the New City Catechism and there were lots of different answers all affirming or describing an element of what faith is and what it looks like. The answer to the question as defined by the New City Catechism is this. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word. Trusting in him and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. This realization for a belief is both the end to one's journey to salvation and also the beginning. It completes our need for understanding. It underpins our need for no excuse and it delivers on a trust to put trust in the eternal everlasting God. But our need to believe is also a continual requirement, a regular reminder for us to trust in Him, to rest in Him, to continually seek to know Him more. It must become the driver for us when He says go, that we go. That when He asks us to wait, that we wait. That when He asks us to sacrifice, we sacrifice. To endure, when He asks us to endure. And above all, to lovingly pursue Him. This need to believe has implications for all of us this morning, irrespective of where you are on life's journey. For the mature believer, It's a further call to action. It's a call to lead a life that pursues Christ. To live a life that does exactly what it says here in verses 14 and 15. To be people who actively, regularly preach the good news. Preach the good news in word and in deed. To demonstrate a life transformed through understanding Jesus' sacrificial redemption for your life. It's a call to be invested in. In him, such that you would become more like him. However, if you're sitting on the fence this morning, perhaps you come along here regularly and feel some sense of appeal. You like the notion of Jesus and Christian values, but aren't quite sure if there is any merit in actually needing to believe then please allow me this morning to encourage you to think about it. This whole study through the book of Romans tells us about a group of people who had heard about Jesus, who had an academic understanding of Jesus, who even wanted a Jesus, but who failed to believe in him when the time came. These people are still waiting on Jesus. But he has come. He has died. He is risen again. And he is calling you. This morning. Don't listen. And not hear. Understand. Don't excuse. And believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we. We. Thank you for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you that you have sent people to tell us the good news. And Lord, we are thankful that when we hear the good news and believe in the good news, Lord, that it makes us your own. And Father, we pray as as a group of believers, Lord, that we would Seek to be people who are the bearers of good news. The people with beautiful feet. The people who seek to go out their way to be witness for you. And Lord we pray that that witness would come from a deep seated understanding of you. Lord that we would become reliant on you for sharing the good news rather than anything under our own power or esteem. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reach the lost. And Lord, for those who don't believe this morning, we pray that you would speak to their soul, that you would challenge their mind. Lord, that you would help negate any excuses. And that they would grasp the hand that you offer. We pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.